Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, big news for the city of Hamilton, up at the airport and downtown. Is the Trans Mountain Pipeline a go? They're hiring. And it was announced this week that Ford in Oakville will be eliminating 450 jobs. What does this mean for the Canadian auto industry? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, some big news for Hamilton today on a couple of fronts. Uh, city center sale. There's a city center sale that is pla- uh, that is pending. A developer would like to build a condo complex where that now stands. And DHL Delivery Company has announced it wants to invest $100 million to expand uh, its operations up at the airport. To talk more about all of this, Glenn Norton is with us, Director of Economic Development, City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Glenn, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Thank you. So uh, here we grow again, I guess. Yeah, two great stories uh, in one day. It's wonderful. I, this is absolutely incredible, especially when, uh, you know, in the old days, just one of these every once in a while would have been nice. So two on the same day. Uh, let's start with the DHL uh, Express. Uh, they intend to invest in the airport. What can you tell us about this? So they've been there for a while. I think as most people uh, realize, mm-hmm. they've been bringing in, and, and it's primarily the overnight uh, courier business, right? The stuff that needs to be on people's desks by 9 in the morning. So they've been uh, at the airport going back uh, several years, but this is a quadrupling of their facilities here. So uh, the Canada, w- the Hamilton will now be the largest uh, port of entry uh, for them uh, right here in, in Hamilton. So that's, that's pretty impressive, and uh, we're very pleased that they've made the decision. They, they had other places they looked at and had been considering, but uh, we've been working with them for over two years now. And this is the culmination of all that work. You talked about working together with them for two years. What went into this? How did this come about? So a lot of it, uh, you know, is due to and, and thanks to the staff up at uh, the International Airport, Kathy Puckering and, and her crew. Um, and also once the interest was known and they expressed an interest in understanding more about Hamilton, uh, the former CEO of the airport, Mayor Eisenberger, myself and several other staff, uh, went to Leipzig, Germany, where they have their biggest European plant, their biggest and newest. We toured that. We talked to the executives and sort of let them know of our interest um, and, and sort of the benefits of why they should expand in Hamilton versus other cities they were looking at. So they took that to heart. They did their research. And uh, we were very fortunate that today they're announcing, and it is, it is go. It is full speed ahead. Yeah. Um, we've known about this, obviously, for a couple months and have been working behind the scenes, but uh, they want to have this facility running next year, November, to handle the Christmas parcel parcel rush. So you can imagine how fast that uh, very large 200,000-square-foot building needs to be built and the equipment installed. Uh, Why was Hamilton an attractive option for these people? Well, a lot of it has to do with... uh, our location in Canada, right? We're, we're just outside the largest uh, market for them, which is Toronto. Uh, but Toronto's airport is, is very busy, and they have a curfew on it. Uh, our airport had some capacity, and we don't have a curfew. You can fly in uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And when you're a parcel company and you need to fly overnight, uh, that's really important. So, you know, those two things are our location, but our airport and the strengths of our airport uh, really, in at the end of the day, were the winning factors for us. 
Uh, obviously, Hamilton Airport, a, a cargo hub. What about future growth beyond this? How far can this go? Well, there, there will be more. I'll, I'll guarantee you that. Um, this is going to be the year of the airport, I think. And there's more stories to come. Last week, uh, you had the Panatoni uh, groundbreaking, as mm-hmm. you recall. Mm-hmm. And that's a very large facility that, when they're done, I wouldn't be surprised to see it uh, less than 1.5 million square feet. And again, that's focused around sortation, delivery, fulfillment uh, for Internet uh, buyers. Um, and there's, there's more that we're talking to. So there's still definitely room, and we're not anywhere near capacity at the airport. Uh, we are already Canada's busiest cargo airport, and uh, I think we're going to continue to be that and continue to have that brand for a long time into the future. Uh, people will always ask, so I have to ask, Glenn, how does this affect uh, those that may live uh, in and around the areas that uh, that are straddled by these properties, uh, transportation, trucking, that sort of thing? How will all that be managed? Yeah, so those are excellent points. Um, uh, the airport, in terms of its uh, landings and, and timing of flights, uh, tries to be as, as considered they can, but it's been known and it's always been a 24-7 airport, so it's not as if this is something new to people saying, what, all of a sudden there's a plane in the middle of the night? Uh, I used to live up there myself. I lived on Dickinson Road. And uh, once you grow used to the noise, you don't wake up to it anymore. If you're awake, you really do notice the sound of the, the plane, but it doesn't wake you up once you get used to it. Um, vehicle traffic, so the uh, point where there's the most congestion for them is on the 403. So they don't come down through the city. They head out um, to the 403 through Highway 6. So for them, their main destination is to get on the 400 highway system and either you know, yeah. head uh, east to Toronto or head west to London or, or up to KW. So I don't think people are going to notice a big difference. And most of it happens, by the way, in the wee small hours of the night. They have to be out of there by 6 in the morning to get to their destinations for 9. Mm. All right. So that's one big project up at the airport. Other down in the city, that with Hamilton City Centre. Talk about what's happening with this piece of property. Yeah, so um, we don't know a whole lot yet. So uh, we do know uh, that a company by the name of uh, Innate, a um, developer based out of Toronto, but also operations in Waterloo, has bought the property for an undisclosed price with the closing scheduled to happen in December. And they have big plans for it. Uh, they want to see a mixed-use facility um, up to five towers, they're talking, up to 28 stories, maybe 30 with residential on the upper floors and uh, retail commercial uh, on the lower floors. So I think it's going to be a pretty exciting development, um, you know, engaging the people at the street level. The, the Eaton Centre has been languishing for a while, doesn't really engage you as much as, uh, as it could and it should. So I think it's a, a really uh, good idea, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see that it's happening. How many units? Any idea at this point? Uh, I don't, but if you've got uh, five towers and potentially uh, 28 stories, uh, it would be in the, uh, in the hundreds, so, you know, somewhere between probably three and 600 units. Glenn, are you worried that once they are all built that you'll need another city center? I mean that with tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> Glenn. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. You're, you know, for the downtown merchants, it's great. Uh, a lot of them have had some pretty uh, lean years, and now that people are, are living in the downtown again, uh, it's nothing but good news for the merchants who will sell them uh, food, clothing, and all the other things that you need uh, 
in a day-to-day basis. Residential was always something that needed to be attracted to the downtown. I remember when there was a big fuss when a grocery store was finally put back down there. Um, yeah. So how how can this affect, and again, these this is all in the early stages, uh, preliminary stages, certainly not like the announcement with what's happening at the airport, but when you do get this kind of interest, what kind of impact can that have to the lower city? Well, it... it for one thing, it helps everybody because it spreads the tax burden over many more units, right? And these uh, condominium units, uh, whether they're rental or whether they're owned, tend to be at a, a lower price point than a single-family home. So it's great. Hamilton does have a, a housing crisis, I think. Um, affordable uh, at the very lowest level is obviously needed, but so is housing at other levels. So families who do have... Um, uh, income do need a place to live as well, and the downtown is becoming more attractive, partly because of the ability to uh, travel to where you want to go. You know, you've got the the uh, LRT coming, you've got your HSR routes, and you've got the uh, Metro Links into Toronto. So, it it's a, all a good impact. I think there's there's few downsides to it. When you intensify a city core, you don't have to lay new utilities in a greenfield site. You're generating more taxes. You're uh, helping the retailers. So uh, pretty much all of it is on the upside. Uh, what is still needed down there? Is there anything that, again, I remember referring back to several years ago when you know residents started to, to come back and, and facilities like grocery stores, would, what have you, hotels were, were always an issue. What is still needed in the downtown core? Yeah, that's a great question, and we have that one a lot, and we, uh, we think about it a lot. We try and sort of keep ahead of it and then try and invite those businesses into the core. Um, we're doing great on restaurants, that's for sure, a fabulous uh, restaurant scene. Yeah. Hotels growing, uh, as you know. There's a couple more uh, coming. Um, I'm still thinking that we don't have um, a winner's, we don't have a department store. You know, the bay would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more the, the day-to-day retail purchases that, uh, that people need to make, uh, you know, whether it be clothing or whether it be something to fix something or a little bit of furniture. I think those are what we're still uh, lacking. We have some, but I think probably not enough to supply the, the volume of people that are um, fairly soon going to be living in the downtown. With and, when you're, and when you're looking at towers like that, you will notice the impact fairly quickly, will you not? Yes, you will, because they open up pretty quickly yeah. once they're done. Uh, you know, the floors occupy pretty quickly. Um, so, no, you'll, you'll notice the impact. And uh, I think everyone is, well, most people would, would find that it's, it's beneficial to have more people on the streets downtown. So what happens when you get two major projects? Like you said, these just don't come out of the woodwork. They've been, they've been in the process for a long time. Uh, both of these, as I mentioned, at various different stages. Uh, but when you have two major projects like this coming out on your typical Tuesday afternoon in the hammer, uh, does the phone ring? Do people start inquiring more? <laughs> well, yes, uh, they do because they're, they're saying, oh, what, what's going on? So uh, certainly the the media, uh, like yourself, we've we've had uh, more than a few calls today, and uh, we also get other developers who sit up and take notice. Uh, once Panatoni announced uh, that they were building that uh, very large facility up at the airport a few months back, uh, we immediately had interest from other developers who know of Panatoni and say, "Those are pretty smart guys. What do they know about Hamilton that I don't?" So several of them came to town and have actually. Uh, started negotiations or have made purchases in our city. So uh, success does breed uh, success. There's no doubt about that. 
Uh, worried about this getting out of hand. You know, uh, I remember at one time it was, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's market our waterfalls. And then, oh my goodness, look what's happened. Uh, how do we manage this? And of course, those are two extreme uh, examples. But how do you manage this carefully? How do you make sure that uh, you don't end up where you were? Yeah, so it's, um, it is free enterprise, right? So I would uh, not want to say that we're trying to manage it too, too closely. I mean, mm-hmm. this is uh, free enterprise. We encourage it. We, we have had a lot of years where things are growing pretty slowly, Scott. So we've got a fair bit of capacity. Um, we're not looking at running out of uh, utilities, for instance, right? So the big Woodward sewage treatment plant has been underway for a couple of years. The timing on that is perfect. Uh, the LRT is coming along. Hopefully they're breaking ground next year. The timing on that will be very well. So we're not really looking at um, that getting out of, out, of the, out of hand or a concern. I think uh, my concern is more about having enough uh, talent here to, to satisfy the companies that are moving to town. Hmm. That's kind of the next big challenge is making sure that... Uh, when somebody looks at making a, a choice to set up their business in Hamilton, they can get the people that they need. And you know, that, it, to me, is a bigger worry. It's been interesting, Glenn, watching this. Uh, I've been back here for 15 years now, and it's been interesting watching Hamilton come uh, and make that transition that we, we all talked about for years. What's going to be really fascinating is this city is going to look completely different 10 years from now. You think about what yeah, it's going to look like 2030. Absolutely. Just think back what this city looked like 10 years ago now. Yeah. As I look out my window here at City Hall and, you know, look at the new uh, Braley Medical Center across from me, the new Hilton mm-hmm. Hotel, the, the condos where the federal building was, mm-hmm. the new one on George Street behind it almost. And there's a lot of new uh, buildings downtown already uh, with more to come. Uh, think about how our waterfront is going to look different in 10 years mm. once the Pier 8 and Pier 7 a development happens. Think about the Barton Tiffany lands when that's a film and digital media hub. And uh, it's, it's happening all over the city. It's not just concentrated in one area. It's happening all over the city that we're seeing uh, growth. Glenn Norton has been with us, Director of Economic Development, City of Hamilton. A couple of big projects announced today at various stages uh, for the City of Hamilton, that being at the airport and downtown at the city center. Glenn, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck. Congratulations. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we've debated a pipeline. Are we going to see it? Are we ever going to see it? An election issue, um, the, and we buy it. Do we sell it? Now what do we do? Is it ever going to get built? And now it looks like it is. In a new release, the company says, well, and, and maybe not. Just because they're hiring people doesn't mean it's getting built, I guess. Uh, the company says 2,200 positions, new positions, have been added since September 30th for the expansion project with a focus on Indigenous, regional, and local workers. Heavy equipment operators, engineers, construction managers, uh, you know the rest of the story. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, gaspricewizard.com is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here, Scott. So, Dan, are you going to say uncle yet? Are they building this pipeline? Because I remember you saying on this show, it ain't going to get built. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not budging. Um, You're still not convinced? I, no, that's window dressing. And I think uh, the test, uh, let's go back a bit. I mean, there are, there are a number of people who've been laid off to do preparatory work uh, along the route. Uh, but the big, heavy building hasn't taken place. And more importantly, uh, in the hope that someone from the industry uh, and from Trans Mountain is actually listening, 
uh, until I see mobility permits being issued, uh, I am uh, color me skeptical, uh, and I will remain where I have been for some time until I see that happen. I don't think that we're at that stage yet where, uh, you know, it's nice to talk about movement, but really we're uh, shuffling the, uh, the the chairs literally on the uh, on the deck. And that, to me, doesn't exactly account for or, in fact, uh, push uh, the idea that uh, spades are in the ground, that uh, contractors have, in fact, started the hiring. It's not Trans Mountain itself that does the hiring, except for the soft work, uh, engineering and things like that. It's actually the contractors who get the permits who then do the big hiring and do the equipment rental. That's critical, and it re- does require that Trans Mountain has sat down, issued the permits, and also uh, you know, uh, began the process of uh, issuing the agreements, legal binding agreements that ties them up, or in other words, ties you and I up as taxpayers since we own the damn pipeline. So at this stage, I think it's just more, you know, let's get, let's get, let's have a nice hug, let's talk about wonderful things that are going to happen but uh, there's a lot of work that remains and and the real hard stuff hasn't happened yet until that happens uh, i'm not just saying uncle i'm just saying uh, you know <laughs> show me the pipeline uh, <laughs> um what about though and i'm just playing devil's advocate here dan yeah. what about yeah, no 2200 positions have been added since the end of september yeah well wouldn't would have to ask the question how many were lost uh between the time of the federal dithering and the federal uh, they do say these are new positions dan well they say they're new they may be renewed uh, i'm not sure what they are and i you know i think it would require the company to be a little bit more forthright specifically and and i actually asked the company uh you know an enterprising journalist uh would simply say have you or have you not uh, provided or been provided mobility permits that gives them the right to get on the site to start uh, the real hard work so when you've got the jobbers you've got the welders you've got the steam fitters uh, you, when you've got those folks working and, or in fact committed through the contractors then and only then are you assured that this pipeline is on its way up until then you know it's easy and we know <laughs> i'm not trying to make this political but we know this government is really good as his stats can on providing information on service jobs. These are service jobs. The actual hard-nosed uh, digging, trenching, uh, welding, uh, drawing, uh, you know, uh, construction, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, in certain locations, you're going to get preparatory work, but preparatory work doesn't constitute, as we've seen in the past, uh, you know, the actual building. When I see the, the pipe being bored through the uh, mountain at Burnaby, that to me would be also be a major test because we know that people are going to go out there uh, and will get themselves arrested trying to prevent that from happening. Is, uh, that hasn't happened yet. That's a very valid point. Is Because uh, if there was construction going on, we'd be hearing about it in the form of protest. Um, it, it says, among the positions added, heavy equipment operators, engineers, and construction managers. Is this the first step? Yeah, it could be the first step. Uh, again, you know, you're going to need people who actually sit down with the contractors and negotiate what it is they're going to be building in the the uh, the price at which they're going to be building, and more importantly, what it is specifically that they're are, they are going to be building, consistent with some of the regulatory changes that have taken place with the courts blocking things up and the consultations of the yin yang. Um, the fact is that we are looking, uh, you know, confidently uh, at the what the the desire to get it built because it's the only pipeline that is going to get built in Canada under the Trudeau government. They're pretty much assured uh, with Bill C sixty nine and C forty eight that they're not about to build anymore anytime soon uh so this really is last chance saloon and i think you're going to be looking at uh, a number of these uh you know announcements that are 
made to give us the impression things are happening. And no doubt, building on the uh, on the Alberta side is a piece of cake. No problems. But wait till you get into BC, especially when you get into the lower mainland. Uh, as we know, uh, if you know the geography of British Columbia, uh, Kamloops, uh, Kelowna, those areas are pretty, pretty pretty favorable to a pipeline. They also get a lot of their oil and gasoline from that existing Trans Mountain pipeline. So the BC interior is very different uh, from what's happening down the uh, in the southwestern uh, portion in the lower mainland. Of course, uh, activists and, and others. But my concern here is. Uh, you know, I really want to see those mobility permits. And I'm going to say that until I'm blue in the face. Mobility permits, unless unless you have those, uh, I'm not giving up one inch in my view that this thing's not happening. And if it does happen, uh, it's certainly going to be, as you quite really pointed out, it'll be right front and center in the press, uh, especially the left press. Uh, uh, you brought up a valid point in, in this discussion about whether construction's going on with these 2,200 positions and what they're actually doing out there since the end of September. Uh, if that was the case, would the protesters not be in full swing? Because it's, it's been pretty obvious the election result. It's pretty obvious the Prime Minister has at least said he's going to get this thing done, that it is full steam ahead. Where are the protesters? Probably waiting uh, for Jagmeet Singh to decide whether or not he's going to uh, pull the uh, pin on the grenade and say, uh, you want my support to survive as a government? You're going to have to kill the Trans Mountain. But the gut, but the do you think the Conservatives will balance that out for them? Will matter again. The Conservatives won't support yeah. the Liberals on every piece of legislation. They may very well support them here, but if the NDP saying is a condition for us supporting when the times get tough, um, like your budget that's likely to see massive spending and uh, they got the uh, growth situation in the country uh, worsening. Um, if the NDP is saying, as a condition for our ongoing support for your Liberal minority government, we right. want this uh, this pipeline next. It doesn't matter if you had every party on side. Uh, the uh, Liberals definitely and desperately need the NDP. When will that discussion happen? Because obviously the headlines are now that it's moving forward. Um, when does that discussion happen? When does the NDP use their power? I don't know. And I think that's likely not to happen until, well, uh, the Prime Minister says he has a new cabinet coming on the 24th. Uh, I would expect that... Uh, the next statement he will make in four weeks or three and a half weeks will be when he plans to uh, uh, call Parliament back. Um, so when the House of Commons is sitting and, and the NDP will have its strategy, because, of course, the first thing is the throne speech. This may all be kicked down the road again until <laughs> uh, February of 2020, uh, at which point you have in very short order, short order a, a throne speech debates emanating from that, what the government plans to do, and, of course, uh, a budget that is usually presented within a few months of that. So I uh, I think the uh, negotiations are already happening behind the scenes. Um, I'm sure that some smart journalists are trying to pick up on that, but that's the big one I'm looking for because I know any of these can be potential pitfalls, and I know Trans Mountain is right dead center. And, of course, for the Liberals who finally recognize getting shut out in Western, middle Western Canada – uh, it's not a very pleasant thing. They're going to have to try to do what they can to to rectify and to reconcile. We already have uh, Premier Jason Kenney saying, as I said here many times with you last uh, October uh, and September, that he would uh, push the equalization issue. So we're, <laughs> we're in a load of trouble and a lot of negotiations, and Trans Mountain figures very prominently, as does equalization. I mean, the, the West feels it's been burnt. Uh, it's forced to pay a lot of money to sustain programs in other parts of the country uh, and other parts of the country that uh, generally have denigrated and uh, continue to 
advocate for policies that are diametrically opposed to energy affordability and the ability for us to get our mining and energy resources to uh, to market. Uh, is this discussion changing post-election? And I know you said you, you just said, like, for example, the NDP could could bring this whole thing down uh, like a house of, of cards if they decide to, to position themselves against uh, as they have continued to position themselves against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. But is this discussion changing? In, in the country, because at the end of the day, the Greens didn't get elected. At the end of the day, the NDP didn't get elected. So could it be that perhaps Canadians realize that even though we're environmentally conscious, this is something we have to do to get the rest of the world off of coal? This is how we can have a great impact? Is that discussion changing at all, do you think? Yeah, I don't think so. I think people are basically where they were before. When you have two-thirds of Canadians voting for parties that are irrevocably committed to uh, shutting down pipelines and the energy sector in this country. And I, I don't say that to be, you know, pedantical or try to be, uh, you know, inflammatory. The reality is that when you voted Liberal, you voted the NDP, you voted con- uh, for the uh, Bloc, or you voted for the Greens, and that's 66.4% of us, or rather 66 65.4% of us. I'm trying to think of the number that Conservatives had 34.3 or 34.4. But uh, within a tenth of a percent, what we now have is uh, validation of shutting down the oil and uh, energy sector in this country. And so governments that want to survive are going to say, well, we have the mandate to do that. Uh, you know, it's too bad, but uh, if uh, because Trans Mountain is the last potential pipeline we're ever going to get built in this country, uh, because that's the way Canadians like it, then that's likely to be uh, a conclusion that we're going to see as we uh, we spring forward on this issue of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And the pushback is going to be pretty significant. So you're going to hear a lot of people use that 66%, 65% argument to say uh, Canadians uh, didn't necessarily give uh, a clear answer on what they wanted on Trans Mountain. So it's really open to anyone's interpretation for the NDP. They're going to say validation is that uh, we've stolen. And this is very true. I mean, the NDP salvaged itself and uh, managed to uh, catapult itself ahead of the Green Party. Many times in the election and before and leading up to it, uh, we thought that the NDP would fall behind the Greens. So they're going to be even more militant about uh, pipelines. And I sense that uh, that is a discussion that is yet to happen. And I would caution anybody who's you know enthusiastic and optimistic and giddy about Trans Mountain being built, uh, this thing is still on the chopping block. Will the Trans Mountain Pipeline be what triggers an election in this minority government? It could very well be. It could. Uh, I mean, remember, uh, the parliamentary committees are now governed by the minority collectively. doesn't mean they're all going to get their act together, but on things like, for instance, probing the SNC-Lavalin, unless the bloc uh, is playing games, it's likely that uh, Trudeau will no longer have the ability to shut that down. So that may cause an election in and of itself if mm. revelations are made that there was obstruction and a whole pile of other uh, unpleasant things. Uh, the re-election of Judy Wilson-Raybould uh, certainly keeps that in the spotlight. So anything could uh, drop this government. And uh, I can tell you, having been uh, someone who's worked as, a, as a, an assistant to a parliamentarian in minority government situations, having been a member of parliament, through at least one, two, three minority governments, uh, it's not fun. And uh, you're really on, uh, on notice that you're going to have an election anytime. I think this, all this goodwill and back and forth will quickly come to an end within a year from now. It'll be a question of whether or not people accept the reasons for plunging us into an election. But uh, I don't see this government surviving more than uh, you know, two years at the best. You think uh, just with the SNC-Lavalin and the pipeline issue alone... 
Yeah, those two things would probably bring down the government. Uh, may also be other factors too. I mean, what if the government says, "Hey, look, we have a debt and deficit. Uh, our uh, our rosy economic numbers provided to us rather interestingly by Stats Can, which I doubted many many times, aren't exactly up to snuff. We have a, uh, a declining economy. Um, we uh, we have to uh, either go hard uh, and, and and raise and do more spending, or we have to find." Other means in which to uh, to change your mind and uh, to maybe get involved in, uh, you know, uh, what we saw back in the 1990s. The governments had no choice but to begin throttling back on expenditures. And I don't think that's in Trudeau's DNA at all. Uh, he's he's certainly a big spender. But uh, we'll see what happens because I think we're heading into very interesting times. And the PM doesn't control all the. Uh, I mean, he can he can make them make the moves, but he can't control the actions. Ultimately, it's up to Parliament to make those decisions and. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind this uh, uh, this this parliament will be as uh, uh, the great uh, philo- English philosopher Hobbes put it: nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. Uh, we did a, a simulcast show with our, our sister station in Calgary. We've done it a couple of times now, and it's just been a fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's been a fascinating experiment because mm-hmm. basically, basically, you just uh, you know link the signals and open up the phone lines and get ready for them to scream at you because uh, <laughs> they're very upset and and rightly so. Um, and they keep selling an east-west corridor, and and man, they're just it's it makes it, it sounds like a lot of common sense. Why why haven't we got there before now? Well, we would have got there, but now you have really changed and poisoned the minds of Eastern Canadians with the idea that the sky is falling and that, uh, you know, climate change is everything. Uh, we are now genuflecting at the great altar of climate change. And uh, it's for that reason that, that tends to be a priority, even though it's really... That unfound. being said, let me interrupt you there, Dan. Is the, Has this election broken through that? Because, I mean, you know, we had, no. you know, we have professors on daily that say if we all got off our bikes, or all out of our cars and started riding tomorrow, ain't going to make a hill of, ba- a hill of uh, beans yeah. difference yeah. in all of this. So are we, are we starting to put the logic with the hysteria and fighting this constructively or coming up with a solution constructively rather than shut it off, just shut it all off? Yeah. Well, your prime minister said uh, on his first uh, day back uh, with the media last Thursday, it's all about climate change and affordability. I mean, now he's talking my language on affordability, but he hasn't. Well, that's both sides it. of the mouth, isn't it? Well, it really is. I mean, you're you're basically the two faces of Janus. I mean, you're basically saying on one thing, you want to talk about increasing the cost for everybody. At the same time, you want to talk about affordability, total horse pucky. Uh, but, you know, there are some people out there naive enough to believe it because, of course, uh, it's all a cult of personality, and it's all about uh, you know uh, wishful thinking and uh, and and not really dealing with uh, with, with hard nosed realities on politics. But I think re- the dose of reality is going to start to pour on people rather dramatically soon when they start to see that jobs are being lost. I mean, I live in Oakville here. My father-in-law, uh, you know, uh, worked for Ford for 34 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the second major layoff, and it's really I think a, a sign of things to come. We're going to start to see. Uh, a rather tightening of, of the situation in manufacturing, not just because of policies here in Canada, which are driving some manufacturers out, but the reality, of course, is that uh, we were not very well equipped uh, in our fallback position to buttress, you know, any downfall in the economy has always been our energy sector. At least we have that. We can keep ourselves warm. We can, uh, you know, generate power rather cheaply. 
uh, and we can export a lot. But Canadians have sacrificed, and they've allowed their parties to sacrifice that, notably the Liberals and their willingness to kill all pipelines in this country. We're about to get a serious reckoning and a very swift kick in the pants. And, of course, uh, for those of us who voted this way, you'll have about six or seven months to figure out why you made such a stupid move. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, Analyst, GasPriceWizard.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Scott. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was announced yesterday afternoon, you heard it here, that Ford will be eliminating 450 jobs from its Oakville plant. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, any surprises here? I guess uh, the union says that uh, Ford has known about this for a while as they're doing a changeover uh, in, in, in the models and in shifting their, their production. They're saying that they're replacing 75% of their product line. Uh, surprises here for you? No, no. Um, I, I wrote an article um, in the, the Diplomat magazine, an Ottawa magazine, a couple of years ago that was sort of a big-picture overview the the history of the Canadian auto industry. And I'm talking manufacturing. And, and more importantly, going forward, where's it going? And, and, and by the way, there's a brand new paper out, a very nice paper called The Future of the Canadian Auto Industry, published by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, which is a, uh, it's a left, uh, leftist think tank funded by the unions. It's a very good paper uh, by uh, two professors, two distinguished professors. And they've got hard numbers in there. So these are indisputable. We can debate the, you know, why it's happening, but you can't debate that it's happening. In the last, since 1999, which is only, what, 20 years, uh, we're to, uh, six auto major plants have closed. One new plant is open. So we're down net five. One more big picture stat. If you go back 25 years ago when we peaked in 1999 at 3 million cars produced in Canada, we had about 15% of the North American. Remember, North American means Mexico, Canada, U.S. And we had about 15% of the capital investment in automotive. We're now down to about seven. We're, this, we're in a long, slow, downward spiral. And there are both macro reasons and micro reasons. Macro that are beyond our control and micro that are sort of within our control. So let me just very quickly spell those out. The macro, the industry is going through enormous disruption. We all know that. Um, they're going like crazy towards the development of um, competitive electric cars. I argue they're not competitive yet, but they will get there. Competitive meaning with the same price range without a subsidy, and they can basically go the same distance on a charge as a, as a gas car. And they, you can charge it up almost as quickly as gassing up your car. That's, that's the rough sense of competitive, what that means. And then, of course, there's autonomous driving, um, autonomous driving technology. And will that impact on people wanting to buy a car, if you can, uh, you know, sort of call me a beam, uh, call up your car uh, on a rental basis, for example. Why do you, and it comes to your house as an autonomously driven car? Why do you have to own it? So there's huge disruption coming in those two areas. And the third disruption is, of course, the shift in Canada and the states from small cars to big cars, and more precisely, SUVs and trucks. And Ford was closing these cars because consumers want to buy less and less cars. The micro, and then I'll finish up very quickly, the micro problem is, and all three CEOs, uh, Chrysler and Ford and GM in the last 24 months, said this on the record. Canada is the most expensive place in the world to blame cars. Some of your listeners will immediately rebel and say, don't blame the workers. 
I didn't say the workers. All our cost structure is higher in Canada than in the States. Land, taxes, wages, everything is more expensive than in the southern United States in the so-called SAC, Southern Automotive Corridor, which is 10 states that are where the lion's share of the plants have opened in the last 30 years. So we've got internal competitiveness problems. Our productivity is 25% below the U.S. Yes, our workers are highly trained. Yes, they're very good. But our cost structure overall is out of whack in Canada. And then you've got all these shifts that are going on. And so I think that we're going to see this trend continue. And within 10 years, I am predicting we will not be making cars in Canada, just like Australia exited car assembly plants two years ago. Are all of the shifts and, and, and shifting in this industry consistent with with what consumers want or what consumers are demanding? You talked about the auto industry changing, Ford yeah. getting away from uh, less cars, going more into SUVs, trucks still incredibly uh, popular. Yes. Does yes. this mean that we were not as climate conscious as we think we are, or yeah. does this mean, no, we just want trucks that are efficient? Um, you've just put your finger on uh, what I believe. Because it seems that the climate change activists are not in connection with the auto industry if Ford's closing plants and building more yeah. SUVs and trucks. And, and, and this isn't an opinion. <laughs> yeah. Data, 60%. That means 6 out of 10 vehicles in Canada and the States are trucks and SUVs. The market wants trucks and SUVs. So there's a, no pun intended, but there's a great big road crash that's about to occur in the next five to ten years. As governments say, we want you and we insist, increasingly insist, that you go buy an e-car, an electric car, and none of us want to buy it. My joke about electric cars is not even environmentalists will buy electric cars. Scott, you look at the sales of electric cars, and they're very tiny, by the way, just a few thousand. Well, there's more than a few thousand environmentalists in Canada, so it's not even a a, a, a bad joke. I mean, there, there's I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands. So of is this short companies. is this short term thinking on Ford's part, on the auto industry's part? Uh, because again, it seems that they're moving towards more SUVs and trucks. But is that saying? You know, are we assuming because they're SUVs and trucks that they're not electric, that they're not energy? Well, efficient? they are not electric now. Yeah. Now maybe Ford is planning on some kind of a breakthrough in the battery technology that will allow them to power uh, trucks and SUVs with batteries. I don't know. I'm not privy to their inside data on this. But, you know, I, there's a company, one of the Japanese companies, I think it's Mazda, I'm not sure, in Quebec, they're getting fined 35 or $40 because they're not selling enough e-cars. They're desperate to sell e-cars. Customers, people, buyers, consumers just simply refuse to buy them. How does this fit into the climate change discussion well, then, Ian? <laughs> Because we're that's talking out of both sides of our mouth here. Exactly. I mean, that's... And by the way, before, you know, because, you know, a lot of those who are really angry about this trend, you know, they come up with all kinds of negative and pejorative language to describe these people, which is, by the way, the majority of Canadians and Americans. Full disclosure, I own an SUV. Uh, not a big one. I own a so-called mini SUV, Honda Element. So it's not one mm-hmm. of those great big Yukons or anything, but I'm not trying to rationalize my behavior. I want an SUV for a very good reason. They're more comfortable. It's easier to get in and out. Mm-hmm. I cannot, I mean, because I'm older and I've got arthritis, it's almost impossible to get into these little cars now because they sit so low and it's yeah. almost impossible to get out of them. And there's lots and lots of people that think like me. Mm-hmm. And, and so the market 
is going, it, 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 they're, they're, they just don't want small cars. And the stats are just crystal clear on this. This is not an opinion. This is crystal clear. And how the environmentalists and the policymakers are going to deal with this is yet to be determined. Are they going to, there will be, a, I think, a huge backlash if they start saying, well, you know, we're going to ban SUVs or set standards up that SUVs cannot achieve because they're bigger and they require more energy to, to move them. So what's there's, Ford there's doing? Is they, are they getting all of these in now before they're banned for life? They're selling as many trucks as they can and SUVs before the hammer comes down? I, I mean, I, it, it I just don't. doesn't seem to be in tune with where everyone's going, you know, somewhere. somewhere. Well, you know, you know in the R&D side, and the R&D side is completely different from the production side. The yeah. R&D side are in different buildings, and they hire scientists and so on and so on and so forth, right? And, and they're sitting there doing all kinds of work on the engines and, of course, on the powertrain and on the batteries, et cetera, et cetera. And the, and the big companies, I'm talking the GMs and the, and the Chryslers and the Fords and Toyotas, uh, you know, and Volkswagen, they are spending billions of dollars trying to build the next, the new generation of electric cars and autonomous vehicles. So there's no question that they're putting money there on the R&D side for the future. Mm. But on the production side, they have to respond to the customer. Yeah, market and the demand. the customer is yeah. saying, I don't want those trumpy little cars. And I'm, I'm being blunt like that to try to get my point across to, you know, to everybody listening. Most of us don't want shrimpy little cars. Yeah. We want bigger cars. I didn't say we want monster cars, but we want cars that we can get into easily and get out of easily, that we can put our children or our grandchildren in easily and quickly and safely. And, and those small cars, you know, they don't... They don't fit that bill, and and so there there is a problem coming. And that Ford, in this instance, and GM earlier was did the decision because they found that the smaller cars are um, are, are there's no market for them. Mm. And very quickly, Scott, I just want to get this point out because it's often been said by Jerry Diaz and others. It's all because of that nasty Mexico. Well, in the latest car study that came out of the very prestigious nonprofit think tank in Michigan called the Center for Automotive Research. In the last 25 years, they studied the production and the capital investment in cars. We dropped from 15 down to 8. Mexico switched places with us. And guess what? The United States stayed the same at 73%. Hmm. I keep arguing our biggest competitor threat, if you want to call it that, is not Mexico. It's the U.S. And it's more precisely the Southern Automotive Corridor. And I'm talking Alabama, Mississippi, North and South Carolina, um, these states around there, Georgia, they are the, the threat to our plants in Canada, mostly. Uh, considering how uh, environmentalists in the car industry seem to be on different pages yes. in, in, in one respect, yes. um, is, the, is the debate on climate change... Uh, is it advancing from one of hysteria and, and fantasy to one of reality? Uh, at the end of the day, um, th- there's still a group of people that are out there that think we have to shut the tap off now, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we're seeing industry here. We're seeing the automotive industry uh, uh, do something completely different than the utopian story. Are these two sides coming together for an actual solution, or is it going to be one extreme or the other? In my view, and I'm using as my database, if I can call it that, my source of information, was this election campaign. And I, I think I agree with, you know, I, I agree in 100%. I mean, we didn't vote Green. We didn't vote NDP. Exactly. So what happened here? The rhetoric is getting the gap, if you want to call it, between the diehard environmentalists 
and the non-diherd environmentalists is getting larger, not smaller. They are diverging, not converging. And I don't just take the fact that the the green didn't take off. I'm talking the rhetoric, you know, we're going to shut down all oil and gas in the next 10 years. I mean, this is truly, uh, I mean, just preposterous. And and I don't mean to me to to point this out as a discussion, because this is the way it appears that the advocates presented. It's either yeah. you believe or you don't believe. And okay. I think that Canadians are at a different place right now. I think Canadians believe. I think what they don't believe in is the method of execution here. I that's a, you, you said it beautifully. You really did, Scott, because I, I think the polls are showing and I mean, you know, we're into recycling and we want cleaner cars and we want cleaner air. And so all does that, that mean an end do. of the BS and hopefully a rational discussion here about how we can solve the problem? Well, um, this is why I think Mr. Trudeau is going to have to at the, uh, provide very strong leadership in the new government and also try and lower the expectations for those who have developed a truly uh, unsustainable and unbelievable expectations. You know, the young girl from uh, Sweden, uh, Greta, I can't yeah. remember her last name, you know, she's saying all kinds of things that are just not going to happen. So is Elizabeth May. And and so he's going to have to, you know, have an honest conversation and try and tell people, look, we've got a plan, which he's been saying, but this plan is not going to happen in the next 36 months, nor in the next 60 months. It's going to be over literally two and three generations, a half a century. It's going to take that long to build up the grid and, and to slowly replace the gas cars with the electric cars and to electrify the homes. It's not something that's going to be, you know, like going to the moon in nine years. It's going to be much bigger and much longer. And that's going to Why is that message not getting out, Ian? Well, because the leaders are perpetuating the, 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 this false story that it's just, I've heard it so many times, you know, it's just because of a bunch of greedy, dirty oil companies and a lack of will. In other words, we just got to put our shoulder to the wheel and poof, abracadabra, like magic, yeah. all the oil and gas goes away. And anyone who looks at, at the industry and how we use energy in this country will realize that is nonsense. We don't heat our homes for fun. We heat them because if we don't, we freeze in January. We drive our cars because we're not going to freeze and we've got two young kids and we've got to go get groceries and it's 30 minutes before supper time. You know, that sort of thing. We're not confronting the reality of how dependent we are on oil and gas, and it's going to take a long time. It will happen, I believe. It's not going to be in yeah. my lifetime. Yeah but it will be in my children's lifetime mm-hmm. that we will make that transition. But it's going to take a lot longer, and the leadership is not uh, preparing people for that uh, uh, recognition or understanding. Are we creating a generation of hysterical kids because of this that are more scared than they are uh, energized by the opportunity of what the future could bring? That's my, that is my judgment, at least by the ones who are in the media, um, you know, and, and the, the apocalyptic truly apocalyptic statement. You know, the earth is on fire. We've got 10 years left and we're all going to die. I mean, this is just nonsense. The IPCC, the United Nations Climate Change Group, never said that. Never once did they say that or hint at that. And now they're into this truly hysterical and apocalyptic uh, language. Yeah, we've got 10 years to to change things or that's it. Yeah, or we're all gone. And that's just not true.
true. I'm not denying that there's going to be changes. I think there's going to be parts of the world in the not-too-far-off future that are going to become uninhabitable, where it'll be too hot. I was talking to a friend the other day who was in Dubai in the summer, and he said, you know, it hit plus 50 centigrade. And uh, when you get over in the 50s, into the 50s, I think you're pretty close to the line of uninhabitable. Hmm. And but there, the the good, you know, there is always you know silver cl- uh, linings in the clouds. You know, the IPCC said that northern countries like Russia and, and Siberia and the northern parts of Canada are going to become much more um, uh, livable, yeah, and and they will have the growing season will be extended. So parts of the world are going to to not be uh, livable and inhabitable, but there's other parts that will, and that's going to cause mass migration that some people are called calling a climate uh, refugees. Mm. And I I do believe that that is going to happen. So it's going to cause change. I'm not denying that. But the people are saying, that's it. We're doomed. It's all over in 10 years. The whole world's on fire. They're not. I mean, my flippant answer to that, Scott, is if that's really the case, then why are you getting so angry? You're you're screwed anyway. (laughs) Enjoy. up and just accept it. Exactly. Plus, you know, I mean, as a kid who was born in the 60s and grew up through the 70s and 80s, you know, I remember the Great Lakes. I remember air pollution. I remember the ozone layer discussion. I remember the rainforest in the 1980s was dead by the end of the... Like, I mean, this continues, and well, Great Lakes alone. Look at the the improvement there. I, I mean, these are all challenges that we've all addressed. Why is this one any different? I agree. I do believe we will overcome this. We will challenge it. We're going to have some dislocation. I mean, I look back. You're, you're absolutely right. I remember when acid rain was just killing our lakes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was no fish in some of our lakes. Yep. And now the fish have come back. I swim in the St. Lawrence every year. I drink water untreated from the St. Lawrence River from a, a, a friend's property. And it's very clean, by the way. The water is, te- we test the water. And, and so the point is, we completely transformed the, the Great Lakes. Yeah. I was visiting in Cleveland, Ohio, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on Lake Erie. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Lake Erie was declared dead. Yeah. There were no fish or life in Lake Erie. Remember, parts of the Ohio River were on fire. On fire because <laughs> of the chemicals from the chemical factory. Yeah. And now they're fishing. When I was there, there were people out fishing, and I said, are you kidding? Are you? And they said, oh, yeah. And I said, can you eat the fish? Oh, yes, it's tested, and the fish are absolutely safe, and they're being tested by government. And so the point is, we, and the smog that used to be in Toronto yeah. and, and in yeah. other large cities, L.A., you couldn't see on a hot day in August, you, pro- you couldn't see part of Toronto. And those days are... And there again, replacing coal, but we seem to be doing very little to that around the world. It's, you know, uh, Canadian There's energy isn't good enough. They're going to have to go a lot, do a lot more. Yeah. China is the number one emitter. We don't like to talk about that. We like to think it's Canada. It's not. China's 30% of the total emissions. I'm not trying to pick on China. It's just an empirical, factual reality that China and, and the developing countries are much more dependent on coal because they've got lots of it and it's cheap. So I understand the logic, but we've got to really move forward. That's why I'm so strongly in support of pipelines to ship uh, gas, natural gas, liquefied natural gas, which is vastly cleaner. Yeah. Ship it to these countries to get them off that filthy, dirty coal. We don't That's- seem to be getting that message, though. Ian Lee's been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.